right now in the book of Genesis, which if you weren't aware, is the first book of the Bible, and we're in the first chapter of that book, so we're in the first chapter of the whole Bible, which, uh, as I think Peter mentioned also um, as well, is uh, a creation narrative. It's, it's the account of how God made the heavens and especially the earth. And uh, we've been reading it through the lens of the New Testament, so um, if that's a new thing for you too and you've been here a little while, hopefully you're gleaning how to do that. Uh, it's partly kind of, it's not the main thing we're trying to do through preaching, but kind of a side thing we're trying to do every week is teach you how to read the Bible as well, not just give you the, the what's uh, and the why's, but the how. Like how are we supposed to do this as well and how the Testaments relate together and how the creation narratives of the Old Testament relate to the New Testament and, and all of that. So that's how we've been doing it. We've been reading... Um, the, the Old Testament, the creation account of Genesis 1, in the way the Bible does. Uh, Genesis 1 is quoted and alluded to a lot, always in reference to Christ or salvation or some kind of New Testament reality. And so uh, we're, doing, we're basically keeping step with the way that Jesus and Paul and James and all these New Testament authors read the, read the chapter, and we will do the same, the same thing throughout the whole book. The narratives themselves whisper Jesus' name or sometimes shout it uh, out loud. And so uh, he then, as we'll be saying throughout this morning, have been throughout this series, Christ uh, is there in the beginning. He is the agent of creation. He's the one, he's the word of God. So when God speaks, let there be light. The Bible says in John 1 in the New Testament, that actually is Jesus. Uh, he's the word of God. When God speaks, that's Christ. And so his spirit's there. God the Father's there. God the Son is there. The Trinity, uh, we call it the three in one, is present in, uh, in the very beginning, and uh, specifically Christ and his ministry, his eventual ministry, uh, his redemption uh, is even being hinted at uh, here as well. So that's a trajectory we're, uh, we're, we're taking. Um, so um, today we're going to look at, uh, as Peter was mentioning, the creation of humankind. We've, we've looked at the creation of inanimate objects like the sun and the moon and contrast and uh, seas and dry land and things like that, uh, even plants, but I guess that would be more um, a separate thing. The creation of life, plant and animal life, was last week. And all throughout this, we've been talking about the importance of how God makes things ex nihilo, or out of nothing. How God did not have something to work with in the beginning. Uh, a lot of, if you didn't know this, a lot of contemporary creation stories that Israel would have had as this was being written by Moses around 1400-1500 B.C., uh, was just not that. Uh, the gods that were painted and, and written about in Mesopotamian and Egyptian creation narratives were coexisting with matter in the beginning. So to say and imply here in Genesis 1 that there was nothing except God in the beginning was very, was very different, and uh, except him and his word, he spoke and things that weren't were. And we talked about the importance of that, and um, again, the creation of contrast, how God's telling a story through that, how Christ is there as the word, all these things that... Um, that are, are, are important themes for the how, but, um, but the, in terms of the days, God created in six days, we've been looking at those inanimate objects to the creation of life, plants and animal life, and then today we're going to look at God's masterpiece, the creation of humankind. So Genesis 1, 26 to 31 is the passage. If you want to open your Bibles, that'd be great, your devices, whatever you've got. I have a lot of this on screen, too. If you want to follow along in the PowerPoint slides here, that is uh, just fine. So uh, Genesis 1, 26, 31 is the last five, or is that six? I can't remember, but five or six um, verses here of chapter 1, and, and next week is chapter, the beginning of chapter 2 uh, is day 7 when God rests. So we'll, between all of what we've done so far and today and the next week, we'll, um, I think it'll be five, five sermons worth, we'll be covering um, all of creation. So Genesis 1, 26 to 31, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird in the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. All right, so we're going to look at this from two angles today. 
which I've done a number of times before from different, especially Old Testament, but this is true. This could be done in New Testament narrative uh, as well. Uh, but two angles today, looking at the human and the divine side of this passage. There are human aspects. Uh, what I mean by that is obvious face value uh, things going on here as it pertains to humanity and God's posture towards humanity in the very beginning. So pertaining more to us and what it means to be in God's image. That's basically what he's doing. He's making humankind, but he never says about rocks or angels or plants or animals or the sun or the moon, I, I, I want to make these things in my image. But he is saying about humankind that he wants to make uh, them in his image. And so we'll, we'll look at that first, the human side, some general observations there that we can then uh, pull from to make some more important divine side conclusions about the passage, which is to say, how does this passage point us to Christ? How is Christ whispered here? How is he not just the agent of creation, being the word of God in, in the beginning, but how is his characteristics and how does he kind of complete what's happening here uh, in terms of humanity and image of God stuff and uh, God's generosity and blessing and all kinds of other things, some of which we will just have to kind of leave by the wayside for the sake of time, but we'll focus on a few things that are especially uh, important in the spirit, again, of how the New Testament reads this book. And so we're just doing, we're basically just keeping in step with how the New Testament approaches this book, which is to say it's a book of Christ. It's a, it's a song book. It's a creation narrative about Christ that he completes later in the story and kind of makes it better and, and revisits, but then completes and heightens and spiritualizes and, and um, as it pertains to his death and resurrection for us. So, so let's start with the human side first. There are, are, again, like I was saying, a few things we can affirm here about humanity and about God. We'll see that uh, woven in here, but affirm about humanity from the passage in terms of how God makes them and what he says about them. The first is, as we've been saying, God made humankind in his image. So verse 26 says, uh, again, we call this the Imago Dei, by the way, the Latin there, the image of God. Genesis 1.26 says, let us make man after our likeness and uh, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, everything that creeps on the earth. And, and the us there actually in uh, 1.26 uh, is God talking to himself. He's, he, remember, he is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's not talking to angels here because angels aren't made, we're not made in angels' image or angels aren't in the image of God probably a better way to say that, but rather human beings are. And so God is talking to, and we already see the fact that Jesus is here in the Spirit. The Spirit in verse 2 is hovering over the face of the waters. God the Father is clearly here. He's the, the main uh, protagonist here. But Jesus is here as well as the Word. So the Trinity is already here, but we're also seeing this in the way that God talks relationally to himself. Let us make uh, man in our uh, image. And so we can ask then, what does this mean, right? And I, and I think I, I mentioned that one to kind of clear up what is the us, what's that referring to, but also to say that we can speculate, and many do, about the relationality of God. I think that one of the things it means to be the image of God is to be relational beings. Uh, we are much more relational beings than animals, and we always will be. Uh, we can speculate, is that what's going on here? Or is it the fact that God is maybe anthropomorphic? Uh, or is it the fact that God's creative? And we are uh, creative beings. We create, we write things, we design things, we create life um, in, in different capacities. Uh, again, much more than the animal kingdom. And so is that what's going on here? There's probably some truth, I think, to all of that. Um, the theologians talk about also the communicable attributes of God versus uh, what we call the incommunicable attributes of God. So incommunicable meaning we don't share these things with God. God, God, God is such that we are not. And so he, he is things that we don't share. But he is a lot like us. And we are a lot like him in a lot of ways. We share a lot of his attributes. Those are called the communicable attributes of God. So things like mercy. God has mercy and so do we. Imperfectly, for sure, but we, we have it. It's something that we share. We appreciate beauty. God appreciates beauty. He, he makes beautiful things and he calls them good in Genesis 1. Uh, our value of freedom is something God shares. Our, our value of and our practice of love and peace and joy. These are all things the Bible says God has perfectly. And we do too. In lesser imperfect ways, but in the image of God, we, we have them. The list goes on. We could actually probably talk all day about these uh, types of things, but these communicable attributes are certainly part of what it means to be in his image. Whispers of the character of God, whether, they're, whether they come from the life of a Christian or not. Because all, uh, Christian or not, are made in, in a general sense, a common sense, in, um, in 
the image of God. So all that's a part to the answer, uh, what does it mean to be in the image of God? But the passage, and one thing I want to especially help you guys see, I'll come back to some of that later on, but what I want to especially help you to observe and see is right in the passage, the, the, the passage in Genesis 1:26 gets very specific on one aspect of what it means to be in the image of God, and that is to have dominion over creation. So in verse 26, again, he says here, let us make man after our likeness, and then he kind of explains what that means, and, and let them have dominion. So like God has dominion over everything, uh, human beings are a reflection of that. C- kind of like a, maybe a master gardener or, or owner of a, uh, a beautiful kind of uh, horticultural field of you know, different kinds of trees and fruit trees and all that. Might own it and might himself be a master gardener, but might hire out people to work in it and to be kind of an extension of him. It's kind of like that. Uh, God is the ultimate one who has authority and dominion over all creation, and, but we are in his image in the sense that we are called to have that and express that over the animal kingdom, over the plant kingdom, and in a general sense to bring order to creation or to chaos in the world in various ways. You know, I think the design of cities, some of you guys are architects, and just like bringing order to cities and things like that, and um, you know, urban planning, things like, I think of stuff like that as well, how that can be a, uh, an aspect of being in the image of God as we, underneath the category of having uh, dominion. Now, to be clear, this is not a free pass to, you know, to, for animal brutality or something or for some kind of anti-environmentalist agenda or anything like that. Uh, quite the opposite. It's, it's actually, um, I think, a call to uh, exude authority over creation, but in a way that's full of love and compassion. I was thinking um, of uh, The Dog Whisper. You guys know that show? The Dog Whisper? No one? Some of you guys do. Okay. There's a couple of hands. There we go. This guy, which I've only seen a few of them, but it's this guy who, um, you know, he's just really good with dogs. People bring their, their trouble dogs to him, and he whisp, kind of, you know, whispers or whatever. And he just, he's, he's really good with dogs. But if you, if you know the show, you know that he has this great mix of love and compassion and showing kindness and gentleness to these dogs, many, many of which have not seen that from their former owners, um, but also maintaining a clear posture of, I am in control. I am stronger than you. I'm even more important than you. Um, a human being, and you need to maintain your place as an animal, a dog, in this relationship. And so that, that goes a long way in actually helping the dog to be a dog and not to strive to be something that it's not. So it thrives in being a dog when it's trying not to be a dog and kind of overcome and kind of reverse this divinely created order of human beings being the pinnacle of creation, not dogs or animals. Uh, the dog actually has a hard time in life. And um, so anyway, kind of thought of that as one you know small example, but you could apply it to all kinds of all kinds of a thing. So, but what it's meaning in general, again, is that human beings are the pinnacle of creation. We are more valuable to God than animals. Uh, Jesus says this in his ministry. He says, uh, he uses the illustration of God caring about birds uh, to say that if he cares about birds, how much more will he care about you? Because you're more valuable to God than they. So we are more important uh, to him. We are in his image, and birds and animals are, are not. So we're the pinnacle uh, we're more intelligent, we bring order to earth like nothing else can, like God ultimately does. We reflect his rule because, again, we are in his image in that capacity and many, uh, many others. But I'll come back to this in a little bit and explain why this is important theologically as well, not just that it is the case here in Genesis 1 and how that might look in a physical level, but how this pertains to Christ in, in just a minute. But second uh, is God, uh, second human side observation here is God made man two genders, male and female. Uh, Both are made equally in God's image, yet are different as well. And we'll see more about why that's the case and how that's the case in chapter 2. Third thing is God blessed and gave to them, uh, to to humans. He actually does this to animals as well. Uh, There's something unique, though, that he's doing later in creation. So he's not doing this for the sun and the moon and for the seas and the dry land and the earth and, and the stars or anything like that, but he is blessing humans, and he's giving to them. Uh, and and this, is a, this is amazing. So God's gracious gener- generosity, and we're not even in second chapter yet of the Bible, and a lot of, you, a lot of your print versions of the Bible, this is probably st- like in mine, this is still the first page of the Bible, and God's generosity is taking center stage. He just can't help but give. He's like a parent who get, just wants to give good gifts to his kids. In fact, Jesus says that in the Gospels. He says, God is like a good father who wants to give gifts to his kids. So uh, that's what he's like here. He, he creates and he gives. In fact, he creates to give. It's one of the very immediate things he does after making humankind is give them 
uh, plants to eat. He gives them, gives them food. And as we'll see in the story, he never really stops giving. Uh, he, he, he gives here. He gives again, over and over again. Even after sin comes into the world, he remains patient and gracious. And in physical, but especially spiritual ways, he gives all the way until we get to his son, Jesus Christ. He gives and gives and gives. But as we get to Christ, who is the ultimate gift, as the Bible says, as he says about himself, a given to, to humankind. So in that regard, uh, all the gifts prior to him are whispers of him. In Christ, actually, we see, so later, more explicitly in the story, that God is saying through his son, I give salvation to you, you don't give it to me, or anything. I give to you, you don't give to me. Romans 11.35 says in the New Testament, who can give to God that God should, should repay him, or that, that he should be repaid? What does God not have that needs from us? Is he short on cash? No, what, what does he not have? He, he's, he has everything. Right? So, so this is saying nothing can be given to him. Now that can be a very humbling thing or a very freeing thing or both. And if you feel both, I think you're feeling it right. <laughs> There's a very humbling thing there that we are so much nothing before him that we can give, and he is so much bigger than us that we can give him actually nothing. Yet he loves us at the same time. So keeps us in our place. But it, the focus is on him. He's, he's doing the action here, right? Human beings are doing nothing in, in Genesis 1. They're just like, they were nothing until God intended them to be, and all of a sudden they're just there. Like, like a child being born, right? And then the day they're, they're born, they're just there. They don't have a choice. They're just there. But God is the active mover here, right? Not just that he's creating, but he's blessing and he's giving. He's giving, he's feeding, he's blessing, he's caring. He is loving. And so um, one of the maxims that I think we get right off the bat here as it pertains to grace and and what it means to be human, what it means to be saved, is that the Bible is a story about God giving to us, not a story about us giving to him. The Bible is a story, it starts right here, and it finishes in Christ. It's a story over and over again of God giving to us, not of human beings giving to him. Isn't that a relief? And take a deep breath and think about that. Isn't that amazing and great? That God's not asking you anything. He loves you. He just wants to give to you. And what does he ultimately give? Patient love. He gives himself on a bloodied cross saying, I want to die for this people. I love them so much. That's his ultimate gift. And even after that, he's not saying, I need something from you. So, so the, I think the, the preaching challenge here that all of us are confronted with is, whether you're a Christian or not today, is stop living as though Genesis 1 says, God made man so man could give to him. It doesn't say that. It says God made man and then he gave to them. This is what, this is what the gospel is. It's a story about God giving us eternal life through his son. When, we least, when we're least expecting it, when we don't deserve it, when we're just there in kind of this newly created sense, just you know, confronted with grace and we don't know what we're believing in fully, but... We're trusting, like, we're trusting in him like we're clinging to a life preserver in the middle of the ocean. He is creating, saving, loving, and giving. Uh, like a, you know, like a, again, like a parent uh, is not expecting anything from the child when that child is born. They just love the child. Uh, so is God when we're created. So, um, all right. So that's, the, that's a huge piece here uh, in Genesis 1. He blesses and gives. Uh, the fourth thing and kind of final thing here, though I have a fifth, uh, as well, is uh, God called them to multiply and fill the earth. And so really, he's commanding humans to have babies here. Uh, God loves life, he loves the promoting of life, and he loves the multiplication of life. And that's very clear here in the beginning. Uh, it's the first command, you could say, given uh, to people. But, and later, it's going to become very clear in the story, too, when we get to Jesus, because he's also going to value the multiplication of life through his son, when the second creation happens on a much higher level, which we'll talk about later. So that's four big things here that we can take on a human side. General observations, some of those bring God into it, some of those are more theological uh, and spiritual than others, but they're observations nonetheless that are true and good and beautiful and things that lead us ahead in the story, especially when we realize this fifth thing, uh, which is uh, our humanness, this is outside today's passage, but our humanness and divine image was eventually... Uh, in Genesis 3, two chapters from now, which we'll get into in much more depth a few weeks 
from now marred. And dominion, in a sense, so all of our image, our, our divine image was marred, it was twisted, all these things, sin, our rebellion against God affected all of these first four things up here. I'm going to talk a little bit more about how the image, the specific image of having dominion over the earth, because that's mentioned here more explicitly in 126, uh, was marred. And, and, it, and it was, in a sense, transferred, our dominion was, we just didn't lose it or it was affected or marred or infected by sin, but it was transferred to Satan. Uh, and gods are maintaining complete control over all creation, but we still lost it. And so in the New Testament, what you see is words given to demons and Satan, uh, like, yes, like rulers and authorities and the prince of the power of the air. Uh, in Revelation 17, we see um, this kind of language used, but also um, in Ephesians 6, how rulers and authorities and the prince of this world, uh, which means what? Those, peop- those kind of things have dominion. Right, they have rule and authority. It's the same thing. We we lost the we lost that image of God, and so now sin rules. Now sin is our master. Now Satan rules, the prince of the world, and the rulers and authorities being uh, demons and and satanic work, and again, just kind of an, an image for sin and death as well. Now those things have dominion. So we completely lost it. It's the worst news possible. Worst news possible. It drives the story forward then. Everything's good in the beginning. God says, I want these people to be my image, and I want them to have dominion, but then it's completely lost. And so now we are not the rulers of the world and the spirit of God helping us to do that. Rather, it's been transferred to the kingdom uh, of, or rather, the, uh, the prince of this world, um, synonymous again with Satan, demons, sin, etc. So that moves us ahead then to uh, the remedy, but also further commentary on all this on a, on a divine angle. Which is, and the question again, remember, is what does all this have to do with Jesus Christ? What does all this have to do with Jesus? We can ask this about anything in the Bible, uh, especially it's helpful to see this divine angle on narrative because there is a human aspect. There is a, I kind of am in this story aspect to this, but there's especially a, um, how is this anticipating the greater aspect of the narrative, which comes later? And, And the answer is in every way, in every way, is this about Jesus? If we want to read this passage in the way the New Testament does. If we don't, then we're sure free to believe it's much more about ourselves and that it's not actually about Jesus. That's too anachronistic, we might think, too out of order. But the Bible reads the Bible backwards. The Bible reads Jesus, the end of the story, into the former parts all the time. And so in the spirit of that, uh, he has everything to do uh, with not just this section of chapter 1, but, but all of it, as we've been seeing in this series. So in, in regards, though, to the image of God and, and humanity... The New Testament teaches us that Jesus is like an ultimate human being or a second Adam. Adam was, and we'll meet him by name uh, two weeks from now, and his wife Eve, the the first two human beings created, having this priestly role over all of humanity in a sense. I'll explain that in a couple of weeks, but that he's a second one. So Romans 5 says, like sin came through the first Adam, so in the second Adam, uh, the many will be made righteous and be saved. And so it's a, it's a correlation. It's saying there are two creations. The first one went to hell, and the first Adam is, is associated with it, but the, there's a new creation now associated with Jesus. He's like the second harbinger of a new creation. And through him, life will come. Through him, righteousness will come. Through him, redemption will come. Through him will be a restored divine image to all who believe in him. So in his humanness then, Jesus is in the image of God because all humans are. This is... He's, he's the son of God as well, but he's fully human. He's the ultimate human being, being sinless. But in his divinity, being the son of God, he was particularly in God's image. Colossians 1 says, in the New, Test- in the New Testament, gets at this really well, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, All things were created through him and for him. So we're not just reminded here that Jesus was there in the beginning. This is saying that, like I talked about earlier, that he um, was there with God creating in the beginning. But um, it's, it's also saying that all things in this last line were created by him, through him, and for him. So what does that mean? All things were made for him, not just you know, through him, even just the power behind the, the creative decree in the beginning. 
What we can rule out here, and we've already done this, we've ruled out the, the possible interpretation that this is a, you know, a, a statement of God saying, I want humans to work for me. I'm bored, or I'm tired, or I want them to serve me. We've ruled that out because that's not what he says in Genesis 1, right? The opposite happens. He, he gives, not even the neutrals in play. Has, so there could be a neutral thing where nothing happens, but certainly not the, I want these human beings to work for me happens. What happens is God's saying, I want to give to them. So we've ruled out the possibility of this meaning that God wants servants. Does it need anything? So then the question is, what does this mean? I, I think the, the way we need to read it is, is to say, it, all things were created for his sake, that he might later enter into the story and be the ultimate expression of it. So kind of like, if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how God made light. God just didn't think of light randomly on a whim and make it. He made light because he was light. He made light because he wanted light to be an expression of him. He wanted light to, to point people back to his character. So he made light. Like an artist is painting something that points us back to him. It's an expression of his or her thoughts or, you know, artistic leanings or, you know, skill and all of that. It's the same with God. Everything in creation is an expression of him. And so it's for the, when it says for him or for Jesus, it's, we should read it as though it's he's saying that it's for his sake. It's so that he might enter into it or that it might point us to him. Humanity is not an exception uh, to this. It's, it was, we were created, humanity was created so that Jesus might later enter into it um, and be the ultimate version of it. Kind of like a, a golfer, think about it this way too, a golfer, a really good golfer designing a golf course so he himself could play it and show off his skill. It's kind of like what's going on here. Is a really good golfer designing a golf course so he himself could play it and show off his skill. That's, it, was, it was made then for, that golf course was created for the sake of that golfer, not that the golf course would somehow serve, you know, in a personified manner, that'd be silly, right? Uh, in a personified manner of the, uh, the designer or, or the golfer, so it's kind of like that as well. So then, with, with all that said, with Colossians 1 in play here, we can then affirm that everything we just said about the human side of this passage, God's intent for humanity, would also be God's intent for his son. Jesus Christ, because he's human, and he's the ultimate human. So we can affirm all those first four things. If you go back to those, you remember those. I don't have a slide here, but those first four things, we can affirm that that's God's intent for us, but ultimately for Jesus, his son, who would come to perfect it and be the ultimate goal of it, and in a sense, snatch it back from Satan who stole it. So he is the ultimate then expression, but for example, he's the ultimate expression of all those communicable attributes that we talked about before. Uh, he is grace. He is mercy. He is love. He, Jesus is freedom. He, he promotes it. He adores beautiful things, and, and he is the peace, the actual peace of God. So we might be peaceful individuals, but Jesus is the peace of God. Jesus calls people to himself, not to a way of living. He never says, this is how you live peaceful lives. You know, other types of saviors of the world talk in that manner. But Jesus is the only one who says, I am the peace of God. I am the way. I am the life. I am the fountain. I am the bread. I am the resurrection. I am the truth. Not this is true, but I am the truth. He's the only one that talks that way. Right? I mean, I don't have any other. So either, either he's a lunatic or he's actually the son of God. So he, so he is then heightening what we start to image and kind of image in an imperfect, marred way as divine image bearers. He is the ultimate expression of all those things. And, and then, as it pertains to dominion, just to focus on that one a little bit here, and I'll come back to more of these. Dominion, he is the ultimate one to have dominion. Or the one to, again, snatch it back from Satan when he comes to earth. So, so we see then in his ministry things like uh, Jesus walk on water. He's bending laws of nature. We see him raise the dead. We see him raise himself from the dead. But we also see him come to have everything, the Bible says, put in subjection under his feet when he dies and is raised and is ascended to heaven to be seated at the right hand of, of God the Father. Hebrews 2, 5-9 gets at this well. It says, um, in, in context, he's comparing Jesus to angels saying Jesus is much better than angels. So he says, for 
it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, which I, I love that, by the way, side point, that the, an inspired New Testament author is, doesn't really know what he's quoting. <laughs> he's like, he's quoting Psalm 8, and I'll, get, I'll mention that again here in a second. He's quoting the Old Testament, but he's saying, it says somewhere. So it's actually inspired to do that. You should do that. You know, I do that. I try to do that sometimes. I have no idea where it is, but I know it says it somewhere. Anyway, it's been testified somewhere. The book says somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's the end of Psalm 8, but then he keeps going. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So it's really interesting how he's using this psalm because if you notice the quotes here, that the psalm itself isn't talking about Jesus initially. He's actually talking about Genesis 1. He's talking about people. It's this mystery of uh, who are people that you should give them dominion over the earth? Why not angels? We're, we're lower than angels in a sense, but you gave people dominion and control over the earth? It's kind of this mystery. That's what Psalm 8 is talking about, kind of in a worshipful way. Who are we? Actually, one of those song, the, the songs we just said earlier was, who are we that, that we should be saved or that God should send us? It's that kind of idea in Psalm 8. But the author of Hebrews is theologizing about this and saying, well, if this is true for humans, how much more for the ultimate human? So then he's saying Psalm 8 is really about Christ. If it's about humans, it's about Jesus because Jesus is human and the ultimate one at that. And all scripture is about him. So it's about, it's about him then being the ultimate one who was made lower than the angels. It's about him being the ultimate one who through his death and resurrection and now ascension to heaven was given ultimate authority over all things. Like a, like a king who goes to battle and wins and now owns and controls enemy territory. That's what's being, that's what's being taught here. Christ went into enemy territory, into sin and death, into hell, against Satan, fought a battle for us, and now uh, he, he kind of owns all of it, or he's over it. He, every, everything's in subjection to him. Everything, 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 every molecule in the universe. And so that's actually where this doesn't just get, you know, kind of cool to see these dots connected, but personal quickly and deeply uh, practical. For us is that if everything's in subjection to him, well, what does that mean for us? It doesn't just mean that Satan is, it means all of our sins are. Everything we've ever done, everything we've ever done to harm people or God or ourselves, every act of rebellion, every act of self-deification, every act of running from God, every act of not living as though he matters that much, everything has been atoned for, everything's been beaten, everything's been squashed. Everything's been now uh, ruled over by the king of the universe, so it's no longer this thing kind of moving around the world unchecked, threatening our relationship with God. He rules it. And, and so to borrow language from Genesis 1, like humankind had dominion over all the creeping things of the earth, which I think is kind of a nod to Satan, who was the ultimate serpent and snake, uh, referred to that in the scriptures, so does Jesus now have dominion over the ultimate creeping thing which is Satan, the ultimate serpent, and sin and death. Revelation 12 says, in reference to Jesus dying on the cross, uh, this is an apocalyptic vision, so it's a little more poetic, but it's saying John the apostle sees this vision of Jesus dying on the cross, and, the, and then in reference to that, and in light of that death, in light of that victory, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient creeping thing, serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And in Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, again, later in the same chapter, it says the same thing. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of Jesus of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, not having dominion, enslaved, to fear, enslaved to death, enslaved to sin, through Jesus' death, when he became one of us to die as one of us before God, he atones for all of it. So 
He advocates. He enters into it, see? Not just our humanity, but our sufferings. He enters into it to kind of pull us out, like the wake behind a boat kind of pulls things forward. He, he comes out of that tomb, and he pulls us out with him when we believe. Now, he entered into all of our experience as the ultimate image of God uh, to save us and to restore that image, to restore dominion, to snatch it back from the devil, to take away the sting of death. And now he has the keys of death in Hades itself, Revelation says. Isn't that a freeing thought? That your Savior, the Savior of the world, has the keys of death. It's not an unchecked enemy. Jesus controls who dies and who lives. He has the keys to the door because he experienced it and came up out of it. He beat it. He overwhelmed it, the scriptures say. So now he has the keys. So what should we fear? We have nothing more to fear. Death, the ultimate enemy, has been overwhelmed. And he has the keys now. Again, that's a symbol of dominion. It's a symbol of authority. It's a symbol over, I'm over you and in control of you. So he has the keys to sin, death, Hades, Satan, evil. He has dominion. And so the idea of him then having that dominion and ascending to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God, maybe you've wondered, why is that important before? Why is Christ ascending to heaven so important. These passages about having his Satan under his feet, I mean, I get that. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing, but why is that really in the Bible or that, that important? It's crucial because that includes your sin. If that's not in the Bible, your sin is still running around like a creeping thing, unchecked, and may keep you away from God in the end. But as it is, it's a defeated enemy. Whatever you've done, he's died for. Whatever you've done, he's atoned for. Whatever you've done, he's fought, killed, vanquished, stomped on as this, as this creeping thing of the world that we've lost dominion over so that now it has dominion over us, sin, but now he's regained that dominion and invites us in, uh, into that. So, so praise God for that. And, there, and then the ultimate question then, and this is a little bit of a, just a teaching thing here for whenever you guys come across image of God's stuff, in the future, but, but for today as well, of course. The, the ultimate question when we talk about the image of God is not how can I better live a life in the image of God, but rather how is God going to restore a hopelessly marred divine image in my soul? See how different those are? The, bibl the biblical question is never God saying, okay, this happened, sin happened, and image is marred, so here are some things to do to fix that yourselves. Have fun storming the castle, period. It's not how it goes. It's not the story. This, the story is rather God wants to enter into it himself to do all of the saving 100% himself. 100% of the restoring of the divine image, he wants to absorb it, take it on himself, take it on his shoulders, fight the battle, restore dominion, that image, that divine image. He wants to be that ultimate human and then share that with us. So the gospel then doesn't say Christ is your example to follow, but rather he is the one who's done things for us. He is our, on the bottom here, our representative. He's our advocate. He's our substitute. He's our savior. He's our very life and very breath. He's everything. So now that, now if we live in any way in kind of a dominion over sin way, if you've ever had victory over sin in your life as a Christian, but that's actually because Christ has beat sin for you and he shares his rule with you. You're his child. He's inside you. His spirit is given to you. He, he's exercising dominion through your thoughts and through your rebuke of evil and through your choosing to go the right path. That's actually him. So rejoice in that. When that happens, rejoice. God has seen fit to love you and save you and also set up camp in your heart so that dominion can be restored to you. And so in that way, you can have the image of God and his son restored to your heart. So three things then, kind of got ahead of myself there, but let me just recap these three things in summary. A um, couple uh, add-ons here too, for the sake of just wanting to mention it. <clears throat> the first is, uh, and the most important, is in light of all we've been saying, this is, you know, this is more about Christ than us, is to believe in the Christ of Genesis 1 and to worship him. Jude 1.25 says, that To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, 
and here's that word again, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So rejoice that he has trampled over your sin. If you're not a Christian yet, see the invitation God gives you is come to me and, and, and find rest. Let me fight your battles for you. Let me renew your soul. Believe in me because I died for you. So the penalty of sin is, is kind of placed on me now and absorbed. His invitation has come to me, not restore the divine image yourself. Here's some laws to keep. Here's the Ten Commandments to keep. Try really hard. Restore that image yourself. It's not the story. The story is Christ has trampled your sin. He rules over it now. And our call is simply to believe in that, that that's actually true. So do you believe that's true? Do you wrestle with that? Do you kind of believe it? I mean, if, if, if you're in any way not believing, just confess that to God and pray. Say, God, help me to believe this more. I know for me, I, I don't believe this. Like, if you ask me this question, I would never say I believe this. But I functionally live as though Genesis 1 says um, that God creates human beings to serve him, not he who creates human beings to give. Like, I functionally live that way all the time. Because the first question I ask in my day sometimes is, what can I do for God? Terrible question to ask. Actually, it's not terrible, but it's a terrible first question to ask. It's a great second question to ask. But it's a terrible first question to ask. I just, I just missed the point. So, but that, that affects your life. It, it robs me of joy. I'm not a happy person when I think that way. I'm a much happier man when I think about how God made everything in the beginning and just started giving. And now the fact that I'm saved today is just simply a testimony to God's mysterious, crazy grace that he would save a messed up guy like me. That's just, I don't know why. When I, when I think about that, I'm humble, I'm happy. I don't really care about making mistakes anymore because I'm not saved by how well I live. I don't have to win debates. I can be wrong and be free to be wrong. Um, I, I, I can, you know, enter more into the, the dirty jobs of my day, like cleaning up, cleaning up my kid's puke last night at midnight when she started puking. And I'm like, you know what? This is all right. This is a good way to spend my time. I'd rather, I'd rather be nowhere else than right here with my daughter and, rather than saving the world, you know, or conquering the world or whatever. So it, it changes everything. But I think that there's that question we have to ask is, you might not believe Genesis 1 says God creates man to serve him, but you might live that way functionally. So just ask yourself that. Do you think that's the story? Is that really how Genesis 1 reads in your mind or your heart or your actions? Or does it say to you, God creates to give food, the food of his son? And so, like it says there in chapter 1, he blessed, he gave. And that's the, that's the call of the gospel, the invitation at the end is, you know, and Jesus, this is why Jesus says in the gospels that he is like food. His body is like bread, his blood is like wine, and he says, you have to eat my body to be saved. It's actually one of those teachings where Jesus lost a lot of followers because they were like, weird, I'm out, and they left. But a lot stayed because they understood. It's a metaphor, obviously, but he's saying you have to eat the fact that I'm going to die for your sins. That has to be your ultimate nourishment. You have to vomit out all selfish ambition. You have to vomit out all of the other types of food you're eating that's all about you and your goodness. Get it out of your system, and you have to eat the fact that the only way to be saved is if God dies for human beings. The only way to be saved generally is if God gives. And the way he gives is through his son. So that's the food. That's the food of salvation that Jesus says, come, buy, and eat without. Buy without money, as the, the um, prophets say in the Old Testament. Buy without money because it's free. Partake, eat. The worst of sinners. This is why the worst of sinners a lot of times are saved and good people are not. Because they think they're good, but they're not. On that last day, very, very good people will be kept out and cast into hell because they are good unto themselves and they don't have the, the Son. They don't have the Savior. They think that they give to God, not the other way around. And so in their goodness, they actually are kept away from God's goodness, from God's rest, from God's salvation. But there'll be, there'll be a lot of people we think are, have just sinned irrecoverably, uh, but who believed and who are saved because the blood of Christ covers the worst, the worst of sexual sins, the worst of murders, the worst of terrorist acts, the worst of selfish actions, uh, everything. It's bloody for a reason. There's nothing it doesn't cover. Everything's in subjection. Everything. 
the worst thing you've ever thought you've ever done or anyone else has ever done in the world, ever, and think that's in subjection. Because of the blood of Christ, that's in subjection. It's under his feet. He's stomping on it. He rules over it. It's not creeping around anymore. It's this bug, this cockroach that was squished when he died on the cross. So believe in worship. Second is uh, multiply and fill the earth spiritually. And so back in Genesis, we see that he says, have babies. I'll just lay down my cards here quick uh, for the sake of time and just say, uh, via Colossians 1.6, which talks about the gospel in multiplying, increasing, bearing fruit terms. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Um, to lay it on my card, just to say here that the, you, know, you, you never see God in the New, in the New Testament re-up that creation mandate of go and multiply and increase and have physical babies. So I think the trajectory of what that's getting at in Genesis 1 is this kind of language. Is Now he says go and have spiritual babies, essentially, as weird as that may sound. Go and have spiritual babies. Go multiply grace. Go, go multiply the family of God. Go multiply life, not just physically. And if you're called to that, having big families with 20 kids or two kids, praise God. Uh, but regardless of that, you don't have to be married. You don't have to be, you can be single. You don't have to be married uh, with kids to keep this mandate. And so you might hear teachings like that sometimes where it, it is about, and I've heard this actually, well, I won't go into that. <clears throat> I've, I've heard this, though, by, uh, from some people where, you know, you are sinning if, if you're using birth control because you can't keep that Genesis 1 mandate. Or you're sinning if you're not, even so far as if you're, if you're kind of passing up on marriage too much and choosing singleness. It's like, that's not the point. Point is, this is a wi physical whisper, Genesis 1, that. Now the mandate for bearing fruit, multiplying, is always used in reference to gospel, gospel stuff. So it means good news, good, the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. Multiply that in your heart and your church and your friends' lives. Propagate it, water it, plant it again, pull, out, pull off its fruit and eat it. And th that's what we need to, um, to be doing, w regardless of our calling in life physically to have kids or not. And God loves kids. That's great. That's a way we can see all this whispered, actually, in a way, and... Uh, that's great. Pursue that. That's awesome. But you don't have to to be doing this uh, at the same time. The biggest thing here to call and do what Jesus does, how he multiplies, who was not married, remember, who never had kids, how is he the ultimate human being who did that? We have to say that, right? Christ was in the image of God, and he kept that creation mandate to multiply and fill the earth. How did he do that? Well, he did it spiritually. He really multiplied and filled the earth, and he talked about saved people as his, as his uh, kids and his, his family. So it takes on a different meaning. So we have, we, we have to do this. We don't have to have babies, but we have to propagate the gospel. So think about that. What does that mean for your life today? And then third and final, ha have dominion in the spirit of Christ. Kill sin, trample on the creeping things of the world. Now, I, I, this may sound like a little bit, I'm talking on both sides of my mouth here, um, because... I just got done saying it's all about Christ having dominion, but actually, it, it, coming full circle, it is about us having dominion too, as we share in him. So Christ wins the battle, but he shares the victory with his people, like the king, again, who goes out, fights a battle, and takes, takes out the Goliath of the army, and then like Israel in the Old Testament kind of swarmed into the valley and killed the rest of the Philistines. That's how we do it. Our, our David has cut, cut the head off the ultimate Goliath of sin and death, and now we take the fight. And we live in light of that victory. We live in light of that fight. We live in light of that triumph, that dominion, earning battle. And we live. So <clears throat> Genesis 1.26 then, saying, and let them have dominion over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth is akin uh, to saying now for sin, to Christians, sin will have no dominion, same word, dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. If you're not saved, if you're not a Christian, or before all of us were Christians, that was not the case for us. Sin had dominion over us, but Christ came, remember he reverses the whole thing, he is now over that, and then he shares that new reality with his people. So now that we, now we can have dominion again over sin. 
everything, uh, every creeping thing of, of the earth, spiritually speaking, is under our feet now. So the, the invitation is to live that way. So are, are you tired of being a whipping boy for sin? Are you tired of it speaking to you and saying, you're my, uh, you're my slave and, and you obey? Are you tired of that? And this is not a call to perfection. None of us will. It's a call to run to Christ here. But it is a call to believe, not to have arrogance in, in our abilities, but to believe that he actually does share his dominion over sin with us. And believe this verse is true. Sin will have no dominion over you anymore. Since no authority, since you are not under law, but under, you're under the fact that God loves you and has died for your sins. Underneath that grace, you're a child now. So now Christians then are more inclined to say things to sin when they're tempted. No. Get out of this house. Get out of my heart. Leave. You have no more authority here. In my, my old Chris would have done that, but now new Chris, who is a child of God and who lives life now in the risen Lord, um, I have dominion over you. So now we can tell it to, to, to uh, not manifest itself in our lives anymore. You guys see, see the difference there? But it's all about living in an identity that we have in the Son, not about saying, I can do this, but about what, well, what Christ has done. He has shared dominion with me. And then Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. He's underneath Jesus' feet now, but he's going to soon crush him under our feet. We share in his victory. And, and so live that way. Believe the gospel, worship, multiply the gospel in the earth, and have dominion over our sin, your sin, my sin, all of us having dominion, trampling on the creeping things of the world, and rejoicing all along that Christ has done that ultimately on the cross and made that possible for us. You pray for us. God, thank you so much for the gospel according to Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Thank you for the images of your character, the images of the gospel itself that we see whispered and declared and shouted uh, from this vantage point of Old Testament narrative. Uh, thank you, Jesus, for coming into the world to restore dominion when we lost it, for being that ultimate image of God, the exact imprint of the divine nature, as Colossians 1 says elsewhere, the exact imprint of God. You were, you were not just a human being, Jesus, you were God, uh, which we read about in pre-incarnate forms in Genesis 1, being the word of God. Thank you for coming to our rescue. Thank you for blessing us uh, in Christ when we were dead in our sins, for blessing us in the beloved, for calling us to new life out of the tombs, for giving to us your, your own bloodied body on a cross and saying, this happened so it doesn't have to happen to you. I'm dying for you. That justice might be done, but that mercy might be shown. And also that dominion of sin might be uh, transferred back into our hands in as much as you're alive in our life. And so we have dominion over it. God, I pray that um, we would pronounce this gospel and we would live this gospel. We would see it reflected in the world and the culture here at Hiawatha Church and uh, wherever church we're from, if we're just visiting today, the culture of the communities we're a part of, um, that dominion over sin would be sung about, cherished, preached in reference to Christ, but also lived. Um, help us in that spirit. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.